My name is Caleb, one of the pastors here at The Grove. So glad to see you uh, this Christmas season. As we are finishing, or in the middle of our Advent series, four weeks, here in the very end of the book of Exodus. So if you've been with us uh, throughout this year, we've been traveling through the book of Exodus, and you may be going, this doesn't feel like a new series. Well, it kind of isn't. It kind of is. What we're doing is spending four weeks in the final five verses of the book of Exodus. As we see the culmination of this book, God's desire to dwell with his people as it shapes out. And four different angles of that desire to do just that. So last week, we saw God dwelling with his people. His glory fills the tabernacle. It was last week. This week, we then, we get to verse 35. And so that's where we'll, uh, we'll be here for the next few weeks uh, in these verses. And as we look at last week and this week, God's desire to dwell with his people, and then verse 35, where we are this morning, I want to teach you a couple of cinematic terms. Now, if you know me, you know I love movies, and so I cannot help myself. But in writing cinema, screenwriters and filmmakers utilize plot devices, much like authors use literary devices, filmmakers and screenwriters use plot devices to help make these scripts more interesting, uh, to help make the narrative more captivating. And one of them, uh, this is what we saw last week, is the term a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is a plot device that's used in cinema. It was first coined by Alfred Hitchcock um, back in the early 1900s. And the MacGuffin is a goal. What this means is it's a goal or desired object or any other motivator that makes the protagonist uh, that is tasked to pursue or drawn to pursuing for whatever reasons. It's something that's held up where the protagonist, or the antagonist for that matter, looks at this thing and then wants to get it. And the whole movie is creating conflict to get that thing. It could be an object, it could be a desire, it could be a motivation, but it is the thing that moves it all forward. It's the MacGuffin. The famous MacGuffins from the past would be Rosebud from Citizen Kane in 1941, considered the greatest movie of all time. The Maltese Falcon by hum- with Humphrey Bogart, again in 1941. The MacGuffin was the Maltese Falcon, trying to get it. If you're unfamiliar with movies from the 40s, perhaps more recently, Lord of the Rings. One of the most famous MacGuffin is the One Ring. The whole movie is moving to try to get that object. And all the conflicts created from that one thing. Again, in the spirit of Book of Exodus, you have movies that use the Ark of the Covenant as a MacGuffin. Uh, the, um, uh, the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones in 1981. The whole movie, they're trying to get that thing. Indiana Jones also used other um, biblical artifacts like the Holy Grail in 1989 and the Last Crusade was a famous MacGuffin. Other movies have also used the Holy Grail like the Da Vinci Code in 2009 or the, uh, the cinematic classic Monty Python and the Holy Grail in 1975. The Horcruxes in Harry Potter or the Infinity Stones in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Other examples of MacGuffins. These things that is held up that moves the story forward. That's what we saw last week, the MacGuffin in the book of Exodus, the thing that's driving the narrative forward, that the protagonist, God himself, is moving to accomplish, is what? That God desires to dwell among his people. That's the MacGuffin. That's what is moving this story forward. All the conflict, all the confrontation, the entire narrative is unfolding for God to dwell among his people. That's the goal that's pushing the plot along. It's generating the conflict. It's bringing us to the climactic moment of our verse last week in verse 34. And what was that? That the tabernacle had been built, God's house had been established, and now the cloud covered that tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was dwelling among among his people. The MacGuffin had been accomplished. 
And the story is resolved. It seems like the story of Exodus should then end there. But it doesn't. Because there's another plot device that's often used in movies. It's also utilized here. And this is one of my favorites, known as the plot twist. It's a sudden and absolute change in direction of a narrative. And when it's utilized at the very end of a story, it's known as a twist ending. Again, a million examples of these, but I'm not going to give any of them because they would literally ruin the movie. But what we have here is a plot twist that comes up. It's here at the very end, and recently movies have started to do this, not at the end of a movie, but actually after the movie. In a post-credit scene or an end-credit scene where the movie actually resolves, the credits roll, and then there's this brief scene at the end afterwards. A number of movies have started doing this. Most famously, though, the Marvel movies do this as good as anybody. And what's unique about the way these end credit scenes are utilized is it doesn't change the story as much as introduce a new conflict that will be resolved in a future story. A new problem, a new character, a new enemy that's setting the stage for the next movie. They introduce a problem that will be addressed in a future narrative. And friends, we get the very first end credit scene here in Exodus 40 verse 35. I'm sure this is the, the inspiration of Kevin Feige as he read the book of Exodus and went, oh, this is what we need to do in our movies. In credit scenes. This is great. Because if you read the book of Exodus, the film and the narrative resolves in verse 34. The desire is accomplished and God's dwelling among his people. Roll credits. That's the movie. You're sitting there in the movie watching the book of Exodus. This is it. The glory fills the tabernacle and God is there dwelling among his people. The credits are rolling. You're sitting there eating popcorn because you looked up on Google. You know there's an end credit scene. So you're waiting to see what it is. And then it pops back up after the credits. Moses is there. You see the smile on his face because it's happened. God is dwelling with his people. And Moses approaches the tent To enter the presence of God who's now dwelling with his people. And what happens? We get verse 35. Look at your Bibles. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud rested on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Plot twist. Twist ending. This end credit scene as the stories move to this one moment where God now dwells among his people. And then the people can't get in. It's what's happening here. God, everything you've been doing was to get among your people and for your people to dwell in your presence. And now they can't get in. What is going on? And here, again, in the spirit of end credit scenes, it is setting up a conflict that will be resolved in the future. And so as we look at this verse, I want us to notice four things as we go through. First, we'll look at the problem. Second, we'll look at the reason. Third, we'll look at the temporary solution. And then fourth, we'll look at the decisive solution. The problem, the reason, the temporary solution, and the decisive solution. So as we look at this verse, what's the problem? It's fairly evident. The problem is the people are shut out from God's presence. They're unable to enter. They can't get in. They are shut out of God's presence, much like in the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of God's presence, they were cast out of the garden. God puts two angels there with flaming swords to keep them out of the garden, and they were shut out and barred from God's presence, and it seems like that's still the situation here. God's built a house, he's filled that house, and is dwelling among his people, but the people can't get in. That's the problem. So, what's the reason for the problem? 
What's the reason for the problem? Second, why is this the case? What is causing them to be unable to enter this tabernacle, this tent of meeting? Well, if we go back in and ask ourselves, we should ask, what got Adam and Eve kicked out and barred from God's presence in Eden? It was their sin. As we were looking through the book of Exodus, and God was moving the story along to dwell among His people, what happened in Exodus 2 that seemed to almost derail the entire story? It was the sin of people. In Exodus 32, with the golden calf and their idolatry. So what would be keeping people from God's presence here? Friends, the answer is the same. It's sin. God has come to dwell among His people, but the people have still sinned against Him. There's still that sin that remains in them, and they then are unable to enter into the presence of a holy God because they are sinful people. So God's dwelling among them, great, but they can't get in because their sin is still there. Friends, the fundamental problem that's needing to be addressed in the book of Exodus here is their sin. And for us, the fundamental problem needing to be addressed in our world today, in your life today, is your sin. It's my sin. Sin in this world. That's the fundamental issue here. And it's creating this problem here of being unable to enter into his presence. And the reason is because their sin still exists. And how can a holy and just God dwell among a people that have sinned against him and deserve his judgment and not his presence? That's the question that has to be answered. How can a holy and just God dwell among his people that have sinned actively against him and deserve his judgment and not his presence? That's the problem. So what's the solution? What's God going to do? God can't just turn an eye and go, you know what, let's just forget the whole idolatry thing. Let's forget your sin every day against me. It's fine, we'll just look another way. God can't do that because God is just. God is unable to turn an eye or just wink at evil. He's not unable to just kind of give a nod to our sin and be like, let's just sweep that under the rug. Again, in the classic film with Nicolas Cage, the, um, uh, not the Declaration of National Treasure, in National Treasure, Nicolas Cage steals the Declaration of Independence because there's a treasure map on the back, of course. I don't know if you know that or not. Seals it, goes and finds a treasure worth $10 million. At the end, he gives it all to be able to disperse among museums, blah, blah, blah. He has an interaction with the FBI who's been searching for him the whole time. At the very end, he's sitting there with the FBI agent. He gives the Declaration of Independence back to the FBI agent. And the FBI agent's like, what are you doing? This was the only bargaining chip you have. You don't understand how bargaining chips work. And Nicolas Cage, in his finest of acting... As this guy asks him, well, what then would you like? Nicholas Cage looks at him, he says, well, I sure would like to not go to prison. I cannot tell you how much I would like to not go to prison. And the FBI agent looks back at him and he goes, well, someone's got to go to prison. And the reason why is because the declaration had been stolen. Somebody's got to go to prison. Now, in the following scenes, the enemy of the story, uh, protagonist uh, of the protagonist, ends up getting captured. He goes to prison, not Nicolas Cage. Okay, the analogy ends up breaking down, but here's the point. <laughs> the point is just this. Justice has to be served because the law was broken. Somebody's got to go to prison. And friends, with God, God cannot just sweep our sin under the rug. In essence, someone's got to go to prison. Why? Because we have broken his law and God is good and he is just. If he did not punish those who broke his law, he would not be just. He would not be worthy of worship. 
There's a whole tra- a trail of other issues that arise if that's the case. But God is just. Our sin must be dealt with. And what that means is that we deserve punishment from a holy and just God because of my sin against Him. And there is this barrier that now exists that keeps me from entering into His presence because of my sin and because of His holiness and His justice. And so if God wants to dwell among His people, how can a holy and just God dwell among a people that has sinned against Him and deserves His judgment and not His presence? Again, that's the problem. So what's the solution? That's where we are here in verse 35. Well, God gives a solution, but He gives a temporary solution. There's a third thing that we see. Is he gives a temporary solution to this problem. Verse 35, Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it. So we're asking, how can Moses get into the tent? How can God's people enter into his presence? Well, the temporary solution that he offers has been foreshadowed already a couple times in the book of Exodus. It was the very first thing mentioned in the Old Covenant. If you flip your Bibles back to Exodus 20 and look at God's instructions right on the heels of the Ten Commandments, Moses receives additional laws. Look at verse 24. Here's the first law following the book of the covenant there in 21 through 24. All these laws that are applying the Ten Commandments into the lives of people. Look at the, one of the very first thing God said in verse 24. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. The very first thing he tells the people in this old covenant is to build what? To build an altar. Now what's going to happen on that altar? That altar will be the place where sacrifices are made for their sin of un- being unable to keep the law that he's about to tell them. The first thing he gives them is an altar for the sacrifices to be on. A way then for them to be forgiven for the law that he's giving to them. And again, I love the people of Israel. After they get all these laws in verse all the way to 20 through 24, gets to the end of it, and Moses is like, this is what God tells you to do. What do you guys think? And they're like, oh, we got it. We're going to do all of that. That's going to be great. God knew better. That's why the very first thing he told them to build was an altar. This is the foreshadow of this answer, this temporary solution. Well, the other reason why we've seen it is it's the very first thing that people saw when they would enter the tabernacle. So if you've got the tabernacle as a whole, when they pulled the curtains back and walked in the outer courts, there was a scene that would dominate their view. I got a picture of the tabernacle up here, and you can see its layout. Over on the right is the curtain that they would walk into the outer courts. What's the very first thing they see when they walk in? It's that altar. God wanted his people to know and understand, even in the architecture and layout. This is why God was so concerned with the details and the layout of the tabernacle. Is that he knew there in the tent of meeting, where his presence would come and dwell in the Holy of Holies, in order to get to there, you had to first have a sacrifice for the sins that you had committed so that his presence could dwell in and among his people. The temporary solution, again, had been foreshadowed both in the first thing mentioned in the covenant and the first thing seen in the tabernacle. God has been laying the groundwork for how he would deal with this problem of sin. And it's here in verse 35, again, that we see this end credit, this post-credit scene. Again, what do I say about the post-credits? What do they do? They set up a conflict that will be resolved in a future movie. The introduce a problem will be addressed in the next movie to come out. What's the next movie here in the Jewish cinematic universe? 
It's the book of Leviticus. I know, I told you last week, if you say Jesus, you're going to get the answer right. This is, it will, the answer will eventually be Jesus. But right now, it's Leviticus. The next movie in the Jewish cinematic universe is Leviticus. And if you read through your Bibles, if you try to pick up a reading plan, you get through Genesis, you make it through Exodus, you get to Leviticus. Leviticus is where everyone drops off. Why? Because it's like, wow, it's just so much blood. There's so many animals. This is so monotonous. And I don't have a clue what this is supposed to do with me. I will get through it because my church has told me I need to do a reading plan, I guess. But like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Well, friends, what I want you to see, the book of Leviticus is set up as the answer, the temporary solution to this problem. Here in this post-credit scene, God is going to make a way to get his people into the tent. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Here in verse 35, we get God's introduction to the sacrificial system. That altar that has been built is about to be put to good use through daily sacrifices and rituals and ultimately a yearly sacrifice that's seen very in the, right in the middle of Leviticus. And friends, the climax, if you look at how Leviticus is structured, we won't go through all of it, but the climax of the book of Leviticus is right in the very middle. It's like a mountain. It all leads to the middle. Chapters 16 and 17 deals with one particular ritual uh, there for the people of Israel. And it's the Day of Atonement. The whole book leads to that climax. And if you look at the first five books as a whole of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, honestly, the whole Pentateuch, those first five books, lead to this as the climax, the Day of Atonement. Now, what happens there? Why would that be the culmination? Well, it's there. That's the day of atonement, that one day that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would take two sacrifices, one goat. He would put his hands on his head as the sins of Israel would be transferred to the goat and be released into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people away into the wilderness. And the other goat would be killed and its blood would be brought with the priest after all the rituals that he had done, making sure he was clean. Wearing the medallion on his turban that we saw given here in the instructions in Exodus that said what? Holy to the Lord. Under that covering, the high priest would enter then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And there, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. He would then come to that mercy seat and he'd take the blood of the goat and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And there, God's people and their sin would be atoned for. Their sin would be covered. Why? Because you see, their sin was transferred to another released into the wilderness and there was someone or something that died in their place and their sin was paid for. Their sin was covered. Their sin was atoned. It was the day of atonement. It happened once a year. Yom Kippur. It was the great sacrifice. Israel's sins transferred to another. That sin-bearing sacrifice is then killed in the place of guilty Israel. And the blood of that sacrifice atones for and forgives their sin. And that blood represents just that, that someone or something died. That's what sin demands. It demands death. The wages of sin is death. And what we saw in the sacrifice here in the Day of Atonement is that that blood represented that something has died. You know where the very first sacrifice is seen in the Bible? It's not here in Exodus. It's all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what's the first thing that they do then? They run and hide themselves from God. They're ashamed. They try to hide themselves from God's presence. They feel for the first time this sense of shame that we are all very familiar with. It was unknown to humans before that moment. 
but they feel it and they run and hide from God. And God goes and finds them. And he gives them this punishment, this curse that falls both on the serpent, on Satan that deceived the woman, also on women and men, and the earth itself also was cursed. But then what does God do after that? Immediately then he goes and he covers Adam and Eve. They had fig leaves that weren't doing the job. And so he went and goes and finds animals and covers them with animal coverings, it says. Listen, I'm no taxidermist, but I'm fairly certain in order to get animal coverings, that means an animal has to die. And it's there the very first time we see this sacrifice where God takes, because of our sin, there's someone or something that's killed in the place of another, and they are covered with that covering. Hebrews 9.22 says this way, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The shedding of blood is needed and necessary. That that death must be taken place in order for our sin to be forgiven. Because our sin demands that death. And friends, the greatest problem of humanity is our sin. And the God-given solution to that problem, notice this. It's not that we need to be better. It's that we need to be forgiven. And we've got to grasp the difference between those two things. God here in Exodus does not then turn to Leviticus and go, okay, Moses, Israel, here are the Ten Commandments. Remember, go and do this, and then you can come in. If you do good, 70 or higher, we'll see how the community does. Perhaps there's going to be a curve. We'll see. If you do well, then you can get in. Hope you pass the test. That's not what God does. He doesn't tell them to be better. He tells them to be forgiven, to set up a way in which there can be blood that is shed and not their own. But there's blood that can be shed and their sin can be covered. Their sin can be atoned. Their sin can be forgiven. And it answers the great problem of humanity, which is our sin. And I need to just, for a moment, there's a lot that can be said. But I want to just take a moment and talk a little bit. Because there is a pull right now. I don't know if it's the culture as a whole. I don't know if it feels, partly even maybe with a younger generation. And again, I'm starting to get to the point where I can refer to others as the younger generation. That's starting to happen. Um, I play rec league softball and I blew my back out last year and I love mowing the yard. So like that's, I'm, I'm there. I'm firmly fixed in middle age. The younger generation, I sense this pool. It's there for me too. And the pool is this. The pool is for the church, for us, to try to paint Christianity in a way that's cool. That's attractive. In a way that says, no, 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 look, Christianity is like really awesome. You know all these issues in the culture? Look, we care about this too as a church, so, so come to Jesus because we care about these things. Look how cool we are. We care about these issues as well. There are different issues that, that deal with social issues in the world, justice and mercy issues, and there is an enticement to want to say, no, no, look, look at us. We, we care. Look how cool we are. Look, look, look at us. And I want to be careful because there is a way in which the church historically has neglected justice and mercy. And you just can't read the Bible and think that God doesn't care about that. God's people should be marked by caring for the marginalized and the oppressed. I mean, those words are right out of the Psalms. It's out of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus. It's there. What's what's true religion? It's caring for the orphan and the widow. Friends, you can't get away from that. So we need to make sure we don't neglect that because the church can and has. 
But on the opposite side, we don't need to elevate that above the gospel and try to say, no, look, look at the church. We care about all this stuff. Look how, look how cool we are. And we begin to minimize sin. We don't like to talk about the sin. The world doesn't like to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about guilt. Let's just talk about then how God has come to care for those who are in need. And we try to minimize then this issue of sin as we raise then this issue of social justice to try to pull and attract people. It's a good motive. But friends, it's dangerous in the sense that whenever we then get to this issue, which is the fundamental issue, is our sin. We begin to shrink back because we feel embarrassed. Oh, no one wants to talk about this, so we won't. Friends, we can't get through the Bible without seeing the fundamental issue that God is coming to deal with is our sin. To reconcile us back to Him in a relationship with Him for us to be able to dwell with Him. And when we are redeemed, when we are saved, then that changes the way that we interact with the world, absolutely. It changes the way we interact with our neighbor. It changes the way that we love God and then love others. And you know how Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to love others? He gave the story of a good Samaritan. That's Christianity in action. We should absolutely live that way. But I want us to make sure that we walk out of here knowing the great problem of humanity is sin. And that's what God is coming to deal with and address here in Exodus chapter 40 and in the book of Leviticus. Because that is what is keeping them from being able to enter into his presence. Flip over to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. And look at that very first sentence. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So you hear the dynamic. Moses is unable to enter. God is now dwelling in the tent. And what's the exchange? God's speaking to him from the tent. Moses on the outside, God on the inside. And I've just put forward the case, the book of Leviticus is then moving people into God's presence to deal with this sin through the sacrificial system that he lays out through the entire book of Leviticus culminating in 1617, the Day of Atonement. So did it work? Well, let's flip to the very next book in the Jewish cinematic universe. The book of Numbers. Flip over to the book of Numbers and look at the very first sentence. Chapter 1, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, look at this preposition, in the tent of meeting. The book of Leviticus worked. God has graciously made a way for his people to enter into his presence. Now this high priest, this mediator, could enter into his presence. Went from the tent of meeting into the tent of meeting. And the entire sacrificial system was given to get people into the tent. To make a way for God to dwell with his people. And we learn this lesson here in Exodus 40 verse 35. That because of sin, God's presence can only be experienced through sacrifice. Because of sin, God's presence can only be experienced through sacrifice. This is what we see in the book of Leviticus and what God is doing here. But as I said earlier, this is just a temporary solution. Because maybe you're here and you've never been to church before. Maybe you don't know much about Christianity and you're hearing all of this. And maybe you're thinking, if this is your first time in church, maybe you're thinking, are we about to like sacrifice some goats after this? Is this is what's happening? This guy seems to really like talking about sacrifices. I, I mean, we're in, we're in Lake County. I passed some cows on the way. Is, is, this about to, is this about to happen? Well, the answer is no. Well, then maybe you go, well, why not then? 
If this was God's solution to get his people to dwell in his presence, why aren't we still doing it? My friends, that's because it was never meant to be the ultimate solution. It was never meant to be the decisive solution. It was given to point us to, to foreshadow what the final and ultimate and decisive solution would be. And now the person that answered earlier, Jesus, is correct. This is what it was all leading us to. You see, this temporary solution, the sacrificial system, was given to show Israel and show us a few important things. And here's what it was meant to show us. It's meant to show us that our sin demanded death and barred us from God's presence. It's the first thing that we see. Our sin demands death. Either ours or another, and it bars us from God's presence. That's how serious our sin is. But the second thing it's meant to show us is there is a way for our sin to be transferred to another. In the Day of Atonement, there's this incredible phrase and, and image where the high priest lays his hands on the goat. The scapegoat, the goat of expiation that takes our sin and removes it into the wilderness. And in this scene, it says, then he places his hand on the head of the goat and the sin of Israel is placed upon the head of the goat. And God is showing them there's a way for your sin to actually be transferred to another. It's possible. There's a way for that to happen. But the third thing that's meant to be shown here through the sacrificial system is that the sacrifice had to be repeated every day. Every day these these burnt offerings had to be repeated for every sin. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, this had to be repeated for all the sins that maybe weren't caught, that weren't confessed, that weren't seen, that weren't understood. They were meant to be repeated day after day, year after year. So even though your sin could be transferred to another, it wasn't enough to finally and ultimately and decisively deal with your problem of sin and the need for forgiveness. It needed to be repeated and something better had to come along to deal with it. And so as we ask the question this Christmas, why was Jesus born? I want us to see he was born in order to be that sacrifice. Again, there is a way in which we have romanticized the nativity story and the Christmas story. It's all about a a beautiful baby and, and cattle lowing, which again, I don't know how that's romantic, but there it is. And we see the nativity scenes and everything's wonderful and everything's beautiful. And friends, if we are not careful, we can miss the reason why Jesus was born. We can forget the reason why he came. And we might forget the reason for his purpose of coming in the first place. Jesus tells us a number of times why he came. Maybe most clearly in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus come? Friends, he came to give his life. And he came to give it as a ransom for many. Jesus was born to die. Those hands that were wrapped in flesh were wrapped in flesh for nails to be driven through them. Those infant feet there in the manger, still unable to walk, one day would stumble up a dusty road to a cross. That newborn cry piercing the night, calling to his mother, would later cry out to his father at Golgotha, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, why was he born? 
He was born to give his life as a ransom for many. And to die in our place. He says later in John 12, he says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. As he's facing now in a week, within a week's time, he would walk to the cross. He looks at the people around him. He says, this is the purpose that I've come to this hour. This is the reason why. To be lifted up as a substitute for my people. To step into the death that our sin demands. To lead us into God's presence that we had been barred from. To have our sin transferred to His shoulders. To offer a sacrifice that doesn't need to be repeated. But He did this once for all time when He offered Himself. Why was He born? Jesus was born to die. Because friends, it's through His sacrifice that we can enter into His presence. It's through his death that we now have the hope of life. And it's through his cross that once and for all, our sin is dealt with. Our guilt is removed. And our shame is covered once and for all. This is why this is so important because maybe you're here this morning and you hear that and you go, Caleb, I I hear you, man, but you do not know what I've done. You don't know my baggage. You don't know my history. You don't know what I've done 30 years ago, three years ago, three minutes ago. That sounds like good news for other people that kind of have their lives together. But you don't know my sin. And friend, I would tell you, it's not that I don't know your sin. It's that you do not know God's mercy. There is no sin that can outreach the mercy of God's grace. There is no act in your life that God would look at and go, oh, that's too much for me. Jesus was born to take it all in our place, to be able to die in our place, to take on himself the punishment that would bring us peace so that then by his wounds we can be healed and we can know with confidence that all of our sin is then placed on him because of everything that we've seen in the book of Leviticus, that God has dealt with our sin once and for all, that it has been transferred to another. And it's not a bull, it's not a goat, it's not a Passover lamb, but finally here is the lamb of God who has come to do what? To take away the sins of the world. Not to cover the sins of the world. Not to, not to uh, kind of uh, wipe away and see if there's some blemishes that left with the sins of the world. He has come to take it away. It's gone. It's been nailed to a cross. All of the record of wrong, of our sin, the whole list... All of it is taken from us and nailed through his hand. So that then whenever he cries out, it is finished. Friends, he means it. And it's important this Christmas season that we don't walk with a romantic and naive view of the nativity. But that as you walk to the manger, be sure to keep an eye on the cross. Because it was for this purpose that he came. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was born, my friends, he was born to die. And when we saw again last week that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, we saw God's desire to dwell among his people. But the same problem remained for us that remained for Moses. If that's all that happened, our sin would keep us from experiencing that dwelling presence. That in and of itself is not good news. 
Why was Jesus born? Why did He become a human? He didn't just come to reveal God to us. He didn't come to teach true, good, and ethical things. He didn't come to heal the sick or to care for the oppressed. He did all of those things, but He could have done those things without being human. He could have done them either like He did in the Old Testament, through the angel of the Lord or through prophets. That could have continued to happen. Why was He born? Why did He become man? Why do we have that first Christmas? And friends, it's because of His great purpose in coming. Because in order to redeem us, He had to become like us. Fully God, fully man, living among us. He is a high priest from among us. A brother of ours. A high priest who's elevated though. But unlike the old high priest in the book of Leviticus, you know what they would give the priests in the book of Leviticus? A way for their sin to be dealt with. Why? Because every high priest had sinned. So it lays out, high priest, here's what you need to do with your sin before you go before God as a mediator to cover the sins of Israel. But Jesus had no sin to be dealt with. He was the sinless one. He could walk into the presence of God by his own merit. The one who when he walks into heaven casts no shadow. Because he's the sinless one. He is our great high priest. And so we see then that in that sacrifice, he is the spotless lamb of God. The one who is without sin. The one who is like us. Who came to redeem us. Who died in our place. Who Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we then could become the righteousness of God in him. That a sacrifice was needed for our sin, and that's why He came. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. So that you would turn and believe in Him, and by believing in Him, you would have life in His name. Listen, I don't mean to dampen your spirits, your Christmas spirit. Maybe you're like, I thought we were going to talk about like Christmas things. Goodness. Sacrificial system. Blood. Death. Oh, man. Just, let's just sing Christmas songs. Friends, I don't mean to dampen your Christmas spirits. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I hope to awaken your wonder at what happened in that manger 2,000 years ago. What gives that manger such infinite worth and value isn't the act in and of itself, but what would happen 33 years later. It is his sacrificial death that gives his humble birth so much wonder and so much value. It's why we can celebrate his birth because we know what is coming. So again, as you walk towards the manger this Christmas, be sure to keep an eye on the cross because it's that death that gives his birth so much meaning. As we come to adore this humble king who gave his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me?